0: Neves Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution.
1: And welcome to The Parent Show on Radio Veril 92.6 FM. I'm Cathy Weston, all on my own for this special episode of The Parent Show, where we look into something called neuromyths in education. Now, believe it or not, It seems like a complicated word, but everybody listening out there will actually be aware of lots of neuromyths. So here's an example. Have you ever heard of left brain, right brain differentiation? Or has anyone ever referred to learning styles when they're around you? Perhaps they've said, oh, you're a really visual learner or you're a kinesthetic learner, etc, etc. Or perhaps you've heard people talk about using only 10% of your brain. Well, the truth is, these are actually myths and they're what we would call neuro nonsense in the world of education. They're baseless. And when it comes to the evidence, well, it's very flimsy. And on this episode, we're joined by some of the most influential researchers in this field. Hopefully, we're going to be speaking to Pedro de Bruquer, who has written a book on this topic called Urban Myths About Learning and Education. And a little bit later on to developmental psychologist Victoria Noland, who has also written extensively about these neuromyths. Later in the show, we'll be joined by David Weston, who's chief executive of the Teacher Development Trust, and he'll help us understand why these myths are still being perpetuated by some schools and some teachers. Neuromyths are a drain on time and money, so it's important for us to explore and expose them And this is the show for you if you're interested in this particular topic. Hopefully, we've got Pedro de Brucaire, educator, scientist and researcher on Skype. Are you there, Pedro? I'm here. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us. You can hear the relief in my voice that the Skype (laughs) has worked. Perfect. And which part of the world are you joining us from this evening?
2: I'm now in the Netherlands. The Netherlands, Um, great. And after this talk, I'll be driving home to Ghent, Belgium.
1: Wow, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to the parents um, of Hertfordshire. Um, it's Pedro, my pleasure. you are very, very well known in the field of education. Um, and indeed, I've been to some of your talks at various conferences and they're always absolutely jam-packed with teachers trying to understand more about these neuro myths that have dominated learning and education for so long. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do and about the book that you published.
2: Well, um, we were actually I'm one of three uh, researchers, Paul, Kasper, Paul Kirchner and Kasper Hulsoff, and we are a kind of uh, educational fact checkers. Uh, education is somebody is something that everybody has an opinion about, but uh, with a lot of claims doing the rounds, and we have uh, the bad habit of checking if it's true, if it's correct. And our book is the result of. 35, actually 36, different myths about uh, education, about learning, about technology and education, about the brain education, about policy. And we check what's the truth if you look at the science. And sometimes we have to say this is uh, completely rubbish. Actually, for instance, uh, learning styles is a very common myth, but it doesn't work. Uh, some are more nuanced. Um and some, it, 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 that's the most difficult uh, category, we don't know. There is no science saying it's not correct. It's There is no science saying it's correct.
1: Yeah, so in some cases you would say, hang on, the evidence isn't actually that strong. And in other cases, it's completely debunked. So, for correct. example, I'm holding your book here and there's some lovely information about the left brain, right brain differentiation, yeah. uh, which seems to be... It's just, it's, it's misleading, isn't it? Because those yeah. both halves of the brain actually speak to each other. They're not, you know, they don't work in sort of that separate way that the myth sort of perpetuates.
2: Correct. You know, with a lot of the myths in education, is that there's there always a grain of truth inside. Do we have two brain halves? Most of us, yes, we have. Do they have some different uh, tasks? To a certain extent, yes but if you most of the time you hear now that uh, one half is more rational and the other one is more creative and then uh, the answer is no then we see that people who are creative if you look at this at the science then it's if there is a difference between people who are more creative in their brain maybe it's uh, that they have more connections more white matter in the whole brain not in one half of the brain But can you train it by stimulating one side of your body, something we actually even saw in schools? No, forget about it.
1: And Pedro, let's go back to this this issue of learning styles, because that is probably the one that you hear most about. It's something that parents are aware of and educators who seem to keep perpetuating it. And when I was reading your book... Um, Mm -hmm. Where you talk about, you know, how students are categorized as either visual, auditory or kinesthetic learners. You know, it's so neat that it strikes me that people must be compelled by the kind of the
2: neatness of the theory. Would that be correct? Yeah, well, it's an easy solution. And you take a little test and I know how to approach you. Sadly, it's not that easy. Now, again, you can have something what we call learning preferences. For instance, you can have the impression that you learn better by looking at stuff, and other people may have the idea, you know, I have to write it down to remember. But that's not a learning style, that's a learning preference. And sadly, if you look at the science, then we don't see any correlation between working with your uh, learning preference and actually learning in a better way. So, what you're
1: saying is when teachers try and adapt their sort of pedagogy or their approach, that it doesn't work because the learning, st- the way in which they're adapting isn't necessarily, they're adapting their sort of teaching method, it doesn't necessarily add up to the t- student doing better.
2: What you're saying is correct. If you look at the learning styles, there are two issues. One, there are 71 different Uh, categories or categorizations and none of them has been proven that's one issue the other issue and there's a lot of research in educational studies looking at if we try to adapt does it have an effect and we can't find any studies that show a clear effect of adapting to learning styles but again and maybe that's interesting for the for the parents again there's a grain of truth inside the myth
1: but again the, it's it's it it really really struck me when i was reading your book that this is such a timely topic that you know uh, that it's about separating the fake news from stuff that's evidence based and you're not you're saying that we have to be much more rigorous certainly as educators but also as parents in terms of what we're actually digesting
2: i'm afraid so but the, the trouble is that um you know we often look for easy solutions and, and learning, you know, if you want to hear one simple truth about learning is three words, work really hard. All the rest is uh, trying to cheat uh, your mind, but sadly, it's not a trick that most of the time works. So learning styles No, there's actually one myth that's even worse.
1: Oh, well, no. What is it? How could it possibly be worse than the learning styles one?
2: Um, well, it's a myth that took four weeks of my life, actually. <laughs> and it's very popular if you are on LinkedIn, because people tend to tag me whenever they uh, put a learning pyramid on, uh, on, on, on a website. Uh, maybe you've seen it. It's a, a, a triangle. And it says that if I explain you something, you will remember five percent. But if you explain it to me, you will remember ninety percent. Right. Maybe you've seen it.
1: Yeah, and that does Uh, seem intuitively correct. That you know, if you you repeat back something, that the learning will be deeper.
2: Yeah. Well, um, I had a very actually. If you look at the the, most of those uh, learning pyramid images, it looks like science. And often, there is even a reference beneath it. So, what we've done is we checked all those references. And none of them actually say something about the learning pyramid.
1: So, it's just been sort of invented. The sort of the image has carried the myth.
2: Well, you know, now it will sound like a kind of detective novel. But we found the source of the shape. And that's from 1946 by Edgar Dale. And somebody else found the source of the percentages from 1912. They were totally invented that time, <laughs> at that time. But 1912 the percentages, And now you will laugh. But um, we have some uh, educated guess that an HR consultant of a Texan oil company made the combination between the shape the percentages in 1968 or 69.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: So it's just been growing ever since and sort of not, not unquestioned, really. Yeah, you know, the very first time that some serious scientists tried to figure out what the real percentages were, um, uh, it was 2007.
1: Wow. And isn't this one, isn't this particular myth about learning pyramids, isn't it called the Loch Ness Monster of Education?
2: I'm guilty. I, I, I have uh, christened this myth like Loch Ness <laughs> Monster because it keeps popping up it
1: keeps popping up it will not be it will not be um, suppressed now uh, Pedro another interesting um, myth well one that we we've heard a lot is that 93% of our communication is non verbal is that yeah. correct
2: that's the Moravian myth um, nobody has heard about of, a lot of people haven't heard about Professor Moravian and he's the source for uh, these percentages But if you look at the original study, how did he came up with these percentages? He asked an actress to say the word, I think it was maybe three times with three different emotions. And he asked the same actress or another actress to mimic uh, three emotions and make pictures of it. And then he let people guess. (laughs) That's the study. So the
1: 93% is just basically made up.
2: Well, it's not made up, but he never intended to make such a big conclusion actually on his website he asked the people not to be quoted like this again.
1: Yeah so he made some efforts to make sure it wasn't sort of it wasn't prevalent.
2: Correct And, and I, I think for instance um, another person who had the same problem, also very popular education is Howard Gardner with um, multiple intelligence.
1: And this multiple intelligence is Howard Gardner for people listening who've never heard of him. This, this sort of multiple intelligences is something that every educator in the world will be aware of. Can you tell us a little bit about what
2: the myth is? Well, I, what you often see in schools is that they think there are eight different intelligences and that they have to adapt to those intelligences. Yes. Uh, now, this already sounds like a learning style. And actually, now I'm only quoting Howard Carter himself, not somebody else. He 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 made this theory and says, "I often see people using this theory in education as a learning styles, a learning style approach." But learning styles don't exist; it doesn't work. I never said that.
1: <laughs> so he's trying to say, "Listen, guys, rein it in." I haven't actually, you know, applied that that, that connection.
2: Well, it's it's even worse. In, last year. Howard Gardner himself, and I'm only quoting himself, and you can't, can find the source of what I'm saying uh, on my blog, theeconomyofmeaning.com. He says, my theory is outdated. I never checked it. <laughs> and I only w- use the word intelligence to get my, uh, my ideas published.
1: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I mean, this will be, you know, mind-blowing for a lot of people listening who have been sort of easily chatting away about multiple gardeners multiples intelligences and pedro i want to ask you about carol dweck's growth mindset work now i have the impression that her work which has been so globally influential that she too has been we've had her on our show before she's been reining it in and saying wait a minute in some cases you're misapplying my research evidence about growth mindset and she's not happy about it yeah well
2: you know so quite often people take an idea and make it much bigger than the actual researcher has done. Now, Carol Dweck, I have to admit something. We are working on our second book and a growth mindset because a lot of people ask the same question you were asking us. We are trying to figure out how strong the evidence is. And I don't know if, you're, if your audience or you are familiar with what is called the replication crisis in no. research. Uh, In psychology, there is now um, a lot of the classic studies have been replicated without any success. And uh, there have been also a a couple of replications of the research by Carol Dweck who didn't have the same result as her studies. But there are other replications who have the same result. And so now I can't say her story is a myth. I only can say... At present time, there is discussion about how correct and when it works, when it doesn't work. And that's normal because that's how science is. That's, what, that,
1: that's what Carol Dweck has been trying to say. That in, correct. In, in, so she's been trying to sort of shape the narrative about her own theory for,
2: from, for a long time now. Correct? And that's why, you know, I never will say Howard Gardner is wrong. Howard Gardner is somebody who is a true scientist, who adapts his theory, and when he says, I found out this is not correct, he shares it with the people. Same with what you are describing from uh, Carol Dweck. But, you know, bad this kind of information is often not heard by people who already are using their theories.
1: Uh, Pedro, many parents listening like myself yep. back in the day when I didn't know a thing about education or educational psychology, we all bought those Baby Einstein DVDs, you know, and we, yeah. we we ate lots of fish oil and in pregnancy. And we did all those things to make our children smarter. But when I read your book, I was struck by this concept of neuromarketing that a lot of companies are taking advantage of the neuromyths and actually um, promoting lots of products that will have no tangible effect on children's IQ as they have, as they grow. Is that correct?
2: Well, yeah. Brain seems to be selling. And, and Daniel Willingham, a great cognitive psychologist, has a great trick. And uh, the trick is, do you need the brain for the claim? Can I give you some examples? If you hear, um, there is a lot of dopamine coming uh, if you are playing games. What does this actually mean? Kids love playing video games. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to be, yeah. and Another example. Um, uh, the, the brain is... Uh, there is a big plane, brain plasticity with young kids. What does this mean? Young kids learn a lot.
1: Yeah, it doesn't mean that the brain isn't plastic, if you like, or flexible or or, or able to absorb lots of information as they grow.
2: Yeah. And so ask yourself, if you see a product, what is it saying? And do you need the brain for the claim?
1: Right. Do you need the brain for the claim? That is the exact um, way in which we need to approach those kind of brain games that they try and sell us.
2: Yeah, well, uh, uh, last year there was an open letter signed by uh, over 100 uh, great scientists in this field who asked to stop saying that um, brain games like on, on, on your cell phone help your brain because there is no evidence. And there was one counter reaction uh, who said, no, it has uh, benefits, but that was by uh, a, f- a company who sells those games.
1: Yes, yeah, so we have to be extremely discerning, and I think Pedro, I have to ask you. I think as a parent, um, we have great expectations of educators to be very familiar with these neuro myths. But is it, it? I think I read somewhere that ninety-one percent of UK educators still believe in this concept of learning styles. I mean, why is it so difficult to communicate this sort of evidence-based approach?
2: Well, I I have to admit something. I'm guilty, too. I'm a teacher trainer by profession. uh, um, And I have been spreading the learning styles myth for over 10 years before I found out it wasn't true. Because at university, in that time when I was uh, learning about it, people still thought there wasn't evidence. It was a theory. And they thought, we will prove this. And everybody was sharing it. So the longevity of this idea before the new information comes to everybody, it takes time, sadly enough.
1: It takes time. And it's part of, you know, it's absolutely fantastic that I love the fact that you're devoted to dispelling these different myths. I'm just looking at the back of your book. It says... These are the different myths that you tackle in the book, that people have different styles of learning, that boys are naturally better at maths than girls, that we only use 10% of our brains, that the left half of the brain is analytical, the right half creative, that men have different kinds of brains from women that we can learn while we're asleep and the babies become smarter if they listen to classical music. And the thing that I love about your book is you don't have to be a teacher to digest it. It's beautifully written in a way that, you know, it's very subtle, isn't it? Some of those myths need a little bit of unpicking and others are completely wrong.
2: Correct. Thank you for, your, for the compliment. But that's, that was our, 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 our plan and our goal.
1: Well, Pedro, when is the next book out and what will it cover?
2: Well, it, it will come out in March, and it's the opposite of the mid-book. Uh, it's a book uh, about basic ingredients for great teaching, and it's not a book telling what works, but telling what works when, and when doesn't it work, wow, and why.
1: Wow, fantastic. Well, we have to have you back on our show to um, talk about your new book as soon as it comes out in April, so book us in, please, Pedro.
2: Okay, great. It will be my pleasure.
1: Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Pedro de Brucchier, I hope I've pronounced that properly, and he's one of the authors of Urban Myths about Learning and Education. Thank you so much for joining us, Pedro.
2: Thank you. Have a nice
1: evening. Take care. Well, there you go. If you have been wondering, lying in bed at night and wondering whether you only use 10% of your brain, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's all a myth. And this fabulous book, which I have on my bookshelf, I would highly recommend, especially to teachers listening who may be sitting at home thinking, oh, I've actually been, you know... Um, putting forward that view or trying to adapt the child's learning style, my teaching method to learning styles in the classroom. There's a whole world that Pedro is certainly connected to where we are debunking important myths. And they are, you know, it's a waste of time to to put forward these views when we know that the evidence is lacking. So we're going to um, speak now to uh, Victoria Noland, um, who is a developmental psychologist. Uh, are you there, Victoria? I am.
0: Hi, Cathy. Thank you you so
1: much for joining us. My pleasure. My Victoria, just to give people a little entree into your field, you're (laughs) a developmental psychologist, but you've done a clinical master's in speech and language therapy before you did a PhD at Birkbeck. And you're currently working at the University of York, looking at the role that sleep plays in language development in children, which is extremely interesting. And But you yes. also maintain close links with the Centre for Educational Neuroscience in London. And I've seen some of the fantastically interesting articles that you've written on neuromyths in education with Professor Michael Thomas, who's the director right. of the centre.
0: That's
1: right, yeah. So it's very exciting to have you on can you tell us so people listening perhaps parents who've never heard of the Centre for Educational Neuroscience what Mm -hmm. does it do?
0: Sure so the Centre for Educational Neuroscience is um, kind of a virtual research centre which is made up of researchers from Birkbeck College as you mentioned as well as UCL and the UCL Institute of Education in London Um, and the aim of the centre is really to use the tools of neuroscience to enhance educational practice, um, but more than that, it's also about um, allowing educationalists to drive neuroscientific research. Um, yes, yeah, so I suppose that the, the whole kind of the, the whole ethos of the CEN is really to, to be a place um, to promote dialogue between neuroscientists and educationalists.
1: And on a sort of a practical level, I mean, if I were a head teacher or a teacher, I would assume that lots of schools have formal relationships with the CEN and they're constantly sort of, you know, working together in a kind of a partnership. Is that the case?
0: Um, I think that's becoming more the case. It's a, it's, it's a relatively new centre. Um, so it, it does all sorts of things. It provides um, training in, um, in educational neuroscience. Um, and it also has a number of, uh, of research projects. Um, which and always work with schools um, so uh, for a moment for, at the moment there's quite a few kind of large scale randomized control studies um, um, so for example um, michael thomas the the uh, late the leader of the cen along with colleagues like um, Denis Marichal, who's also at back um, are working together on a project at the moment called unlock um, and the, the aim of Unlock is to develop and test computer games that help children to be more flexible thinkers, um, so specifically to ignore what they already know about something so that they can learn something new. Wow, that's
1: um, very interesting. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's pretty yeah. cool. So, um, so, for example, if you're, um, um, if you're a football player and you know from playing football that the world is definitely flat then you need to be able to inhibit what you know about that in order to learn that actually it's round. Um, But importantly, you need to be flexible in your understanding um, so that your new knowledge of the the round world doesn't affect your football playing. Um, So they're they're trying to develop computer games that help children develop that flexible thinking and whether that has an impact on on how they then learn about science and technology.
1: So Victoria... there are, there are obviously very common myths, which I want to get to the heart of with you, that parents will be aware of. And the first one is that we only use 10% of our brains. Is this true or false? You know,
0: I really wish that it was true, right? I wish that I was only using 10% of my brain and that there was a, a fair 90% that that's I could right. access yeah, yeah, if, I, yeah. if I only took a pill or if I did the right exercises. Um, turns out though, that's not the case, um, but I think that that that's a really interesting myth because it it's one of those ones that, as you say, it's really kind of well known, as it were. Um, and it gets to the question of why myths exist in the first place. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is that desire that we we want to believe these things. Um, And in in the case of educational neuromyths, I think there's a bit more to it than that. Um, So um, I think it's a really positive thing that these myths exist, right, because it demonstrates how keen everybody is to understand the brain um, and to use that understanding of the brain to help. So in this case... To help children learn in the classroom.
1: Well, that's certainly a very um, optimistic view, isn't it? Because yeah. people jump on these. Uh, it's extraordinary how, when they when when something's easily digested, it becomes terribly popular, isn't it?
0: Yeah, but I think that one of the one of the kind of main aims of educational neuroscience is to exactly do that to make sure that the enthusiasm, which is there and which is brilliant, doesn't kind of run ahead of the science. Yeah. Um, but equally, um, you know, you kind of talked about working with schools and, and I think that kind of relates back here that, you know, we're trying to harness that enthusiasm and that, that keenness to, to, you know, to understand the brain um, and to use that to establish more of an evidence brain base um, for, to, to make positive changes in teaching
1: practice. And Victoria, which would be the myths that just you just go, when you hear it, you go, oh God, not that again, you know. Which ones uh, would you would you really, oh, really annoy you that you'd like to share with parents? Oh, that's a
0: difficult one. Uh, a bit of a a, bit, bit of a Probably learning styles is one of those ones that you hear just a lot um, and is a bit frustrating. Um, so the idea with learning styles is that um, people perform better when they take an information through a preferred modality. So you might hear something like, oh, I'm, I'm a visual learner. Um And it's a really interesting one because actually people are really consistent when they're asked which modality they prefer to learn in. So if they say I'm a visual learner once, they're likely to always repeat that. Um, But actually when it's tested, so if you have a group of people and you're trying to teach them something new um, and you vary whether they're taught in their preferred learning style or not, actually it turns out it doesn't make any difference at all.
1: But it's such Um, a... People just love to sort of self-label in that particular way, don't they? (laughs) And it's sort of an excuse, isn't it, as well? Yeah. oh I'm a visual learner, so I couldn't possibly, you know, learn in a different way. (laughs) Victoria, what about boys and girls' brain differences? Are there brain differences between our daughters and sons? So,
0: okay, yeah, I mean, that's another one that's that's kind of frustrating, but in a different way. So I I think if... um, I think if I was kind of wanting to say one thing to the public, it would be about this because this is something um, that is a general notion in society and that has a real impact on educational outcomes and on how children perceive themselves and how children are perceived. Um, And things like, you know, people thinking that girls can't do science and maths and that boys can't be vulnerable and can't try hard to achieve academically. These things, these beliefs do have a huge influence on how children um, do in life in general Um, but in terms of the actual sort of underlying differences between boys and girls there's very little so there are some really specific things like um, if you give children a task um, that's mental rotation so if you have um, 2d pictures of 3d shapes and you ask individuals, are these the same shapes when they're in different orientations or are they different shapes, then boys are better at doing that. And if you ask uh, a group of people to um, think of as many animals as they can or as many foods as they can or something that's called verbal fluency, and uh, females tend to be better at that. So there are these very kind of specific pockets of ability that males or females do, do better on. Um, But beyond that, there's actually very little, and even that, it turns out, is more about um, men and women and boys and girls having different strategies for how they approach things. Um, And, yeah, as I say, beyond that, there's very little evidence that there's much of a gender difference.
1: Yeah, a and, lot of parents there... listening, a lot of parents listening, that's often said, oh, but, you know, the girl's handwriting is neater because she's a girl. You know, boys are very right. messy and girls are better at revising. They're so, cons- you know, they're so concise. And, and I suppose uh, going alongside that is this sort of girls doing better in some cases nationally in in the exams, more girls going to university. And it sort of, it promotes this idea that girls are much more sort of mentally consistent or they're able to study better or that their brains are more able to function and be less distracted what do you sort of what's your response to that
0: um, so the, yeah I mean the difference in terms of uh, national achievement is actually quite substantial but there's a literature review from um, 2006 that suggests that that gender gap might be more to do with how boys in particular approach learning. Um, And that there's a tendency for male peer groups to kind of conceptualise academic achievement as being uh, sort of against um, masculinity. Um, So it seems like that might be more of an attitudinal um, problem or difference than it is about ability or anything underlying.
1: And potentially something to do with school culture. You know, if they're in a culture where studying isn't cool, then, you know, it's going to be problematic. Yeah,
0: but it's, it's a it's a problem for for girls as well. I think because um, uh, so let's think about the difference in in maths ability between boys and girls. Um in secondary school, it's there, but it's tiny. And then by the time you get to looking at um, maths professors, then ninety four percent of maths professors in the UK are men. So there's there's something going wrong of from from school upwards as well which is which is interesting and it's, it's
1: not about underlying ability now, a, an interesting term i'd never heard of until this evening doing the research for the show was this concept of neurosexism where you know we have these kind of ideas it, it sort of seeps into the concept of gender stereotyping right. and girls maybe not thinking that they would have a brain for physics or a brain for maths mm-hmm. is that is that Absolutely. what that means that term yeah
0: yeah, and I think that's 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 a serious problem. Um and actually when we're when we're thinking about gender gaps like and how to, to minimize them, yes we could think about targeting those really specific areas where boys and girls do a bit differently. Um but actually changing those societal expectations is gonna be a much more kind of direct route to, to, to supporting young people do what they want to do rather than what they're expected to do.
1: Now, Victoria, talking about making our children smarter, we all want our children to be smarter. Goodness me. Pedro, a moment, a moment ago, was telling us just they had, just have to work harder. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, what about, I mean, I took fish oil in pregnancy thinking it would make my children much more coordinated, how wrong I was in brackets. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, that I watched those stupid baby Einstein videos, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but what, what, what can, can anything make our children's brains smarter? Or are they basically stuck with what they've got?
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a really in- interesting question because it, it kind of gets to the root of, of everything else, right? So the extent to which intelligence is fixed kind of sets the stage for um, everything else in education, right? How we, how we intervene. Um, so the question is really to what extent is performance in the classroom determined by our genetics? Um, and bear in mind that performance in the classroom isn't just about the... Sort of underlying cognitive ability so the sort of things that iq tests test or are supposed to test but it's also going to be about um, world knowledge and social skills and motivation and all the things that we were just talking about um, and all of that can be impacted by genetic factors as well as environmental factors um, so the kind of studies that are usually done to address this issue um, use the twin method So the twin method relies on looking at the behavior of identical and non-identical twins. So both of those types of siblings um, should share very similar environments, right? But identical twins share 100% of their genetic makeup, whereas non-identical twins are just like any other siblings, so they share on average 50%. So what that does, um, looking at behavior of those different sets of twins and how different they are, Um, allows researchers to estimate the relative contributions of genetic factors, so if the identical twins are more similar, then there's going to be more of a a strong genetic component to behavior um, compared to environmental factors. Um, So, using that technique, it's been shown that when teachers rate how similar twins are with respect to intelligence or um, science ability or whatever, um, then around 60 to 65% of how individuals differ from one another can be explained with genetics. But if you look at um, more kind of objective measures, um, like taking an IQ test, for example, then it's much lower than that. So it seems like teachers are taking into account things like motivation and that they are also genetically determined. Um, But having said that, there are lots of ways in which performance in the classroom can be changed, even though there is quite a strong genetic component to that. So I know that you guys have had a whole um, podcast right on the growth mindset, is that right?
1: That's correct, yes.
0: Yeah, okay. (laughs) So I'm sure that you will have gone into this in in great depth, but just for anybody who wasn't wasn't listening um, to that one. Uh, A growth mindset is um, thinking or being taught that intelligence is something that changes over time. So a student with a growth mindset uh, might encounter a math problem and believe that it's difficult because they haven't learned how to do it yet. Whereas um, if they have a fixed mindset, then they'll come across that same problem and think they can't do it because they're not good at math. Um, And it turns out that if you teach at least college students about a growth mindset, um, then it can make uh, the the difference of like an increase in in one grade, so a B to a B plus. or
1: and this has become very a. much embedded in sort of educational policy all over Britain because I think the message certainly that's that's been sort of filtered down to parents is uh, is valuing your child's effort over their performance. Right. Is that correct?
0: I think that's certainly, yeah, certainly true in in, in a lot of schools, yeah. Um, and I understand that a lot of schools have teachers that are specifically dedicated to uh, making sure that the, the teaching staff are kind of aware of that. Um, although I should say that there isn't that much evidence on exactly what's going on there, and um, so it's not it's not as evidence based as you know things like the importance of, of phonics. Um, and and yeah, that's that's really kind of an important aspect of what educational neuroscience is all about, right? It's about taking those those that's ideas right. that have a lot of potential, like
1: that's whether growth right.
0: mindset works, uh, and making sure that we know if it does and why
1: it does and one of the interesting Um, things i've always thought about is that there's no part there's no point a school teaching a growth mindset approach to the pupils if they don't introduce it to parents because certainly you have to have that alignment between what's going on you know if children are being encouraged in completely disparate ways it's not going to be as effective is it right yeah true um, now, I want to ask you about the effect of, of sleep on children's brains, bearing in mind lots of parents are listening who've just probably spent an hour trying to get their children to bed, <laughs> like as my husband's I. probably done, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. what what would you like to sort of convey to parents about the effect of sleep on brains?
0: Yeah, so sleep is, um, as you've mentioned, kind of what I'm researching at the moment and so I work in the um, sleep language and memory lab at the University of York um, and all of all of the work that we do is about exactly that about um, how sleep is important for learning and memory over childhoods um, and there's kind of two ways that we can look at that we can look at what happens if children don't get enough sleep um, and then we can look at what happens when they do and what benefit sleep sort of provides for the for the growing mind, for the growing brain. Um, so it turns out that it does have a pretty huge influence, at least on certain aspects of learning, um, and crucially on those things that underlie uh, you know, so much academic achievement and so much academic performance, which is things like attention. Um, so if you um, deprive children of an hour of sleep every night for a week, then um, primary school age children show dramatic differences, drops in um, performance on really simple tasks and uh, attention and, and speech perception and stuff like that. Now that's really um, critical at the moment because just really recently a, um, a paper um, came out by Anna Whale from Leeds, who's one of my colleagues. Um, so they ran a survey with 1,100 primary school children and they found that 30% 36% sorry, of those children were getting less than 8 hours sleep at night on weekdays and um, so given that it's recommended that primary school age children get 9 to 11 hours that's really substantial um, and it seems like that deprivation is linked to phones and computers being in the bedroom
1: right okay and that was certainly in the news this week because one school actually supplied pupils with alarm clocks because the 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 excuse for young teenagers was that oh we need our phone because it'll wake us up in the morning so they decided to to, because (laughs) it's kind of toxic isn't it this technology in the bedroom
0: Absolutely. yeah yeah so the, the problem as you you probably know only too well that um, screens are not only very stimulating um, but they emit uh, a blue light which our brain takes to be sunlight and um, which suppresses um, the uh, development of the um, release of melatonin in the body which uh, makes us sleepy um, so you need to have at least like an hour of no screen time before bed, bed. if you want to try and
1: get to sleep. Lovely, brilliant. We can all let our children listen to this podcast and then we'll all be citing Dr. Noland when we take (laughs) off those iPads at sort of 7pm. And I want to ask you about um, this relationship between exercise and these learning, these brains that are learning in school. So for Mm -hmm. example, I assume, something I'm often saying, oh I love the fact that at my children's school they get to do lots of exercise and then they come in to learn. Now my assumption is is incorrect that exercise i don't know it seems to certainly in my children's boys school they see it seems to calm them down they come in and they're able to focus a lot more if they've had a run around yeah that's interesting so
0: actually all the, all the research <clears throat> excuse me um, all the research in this area is about the kind of long-term effects of exercise so i think what you're picking up there is a completely different side of it that i'm not even sure there's much research on to be honest um um, but but most of what's known about this um, is about how being fit it increases the brain's potential to learn. So what it's thought it does is increase plasticity. So in plas- plasticity is the kind of malleability of the brain. So it's how susceptible the brain is to being changed by the environment, which is obviously like the whole point of education right to create an environment that changes the brain in a positive way so the more plastic the brain is then the more it can benefit from those positive changes
1: and this seems to relate if you like to to older people as well because the sort of the messages that are coming out of the media are that exercise will help you mentally uh, keep your sort of mental acuity as you grow Uh, older so it seems to be good for everybody's brains
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's actually where the, the research into the benefits, the cognitive benefits of physical exercise started. So it was from the um, the 70s and 80s that researchers uh, were kind of looking for a way to, to help prevent or ameliorate cognitive decline in old age. Um, Yeah, so that's the foundation of all this work, really.
1: And something, well, there are so many families listening where they're raising a bilingual child, certainly in St Albans. Um, I know for a fact that we've got such a big Italian community, French community, you know, it's endless Russian community, Polish community. And there are lots of myths about bilingualism, aren't there? Um, certainly one of them that I've heard is that if you're raising a child with two different languages that the sort of the two languages kind of compete for resources or that knowledge if you if you acquire it in one language isn't accessible in the other language um, or, or that you must learn the first language really really well before the second language is learnt would that be accurate that those are myths and not actually evidence-based and
0: um, so there's a lot going on there um, Some of it's kind of true and some of it's not. So children who um, grow up learning more than one language at the same time um, tend to be about six months behind their peers in either of their languages. But in terms of their language development, sort of um, across the two languages, they're um, in line with their peers.
1: but would um, that not suggest, then, to a parent listening who's raising a child yes. in two different languages, it doesn't sound like it's much of an incentive because you don't want your child lagging behind their peers. So what would so, you sort of... If you were raising a bilingual child, what would you be doing that you, you know, based on what we know from the research evidence? So um, that's kind of, yeah,
0: it's kind of a difficult question. So the, the, so the thing about bilingualism... Is that, well, firstly, it's um, the norm, right, across most of the that's world. That's right, yes, apart it is, from it is. Here. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's correct. So,
0: um, uh, whereas a lot of research into bilingualism in this country is kind of like looking at the advantages of being bilingual, um, it's maybe we should kind of flip that around and think more about the disadvantages of not being bilingual, right? Um, and um, there is quite a lot of neuromyth in this area in terms of the extent of those advantages of being bilingual in terms of cognitive skills. So one idea is that people who are bilingual um, have better cognitive controls. They're better at like, switching between tasks very quickly or better at paying attention to two things at once because the brain's used to um, sort of thinking about two things at the same time sort of in different languages. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but the extent to which that's true I don't think is very convincing in the literature. But what, I mean, obviously is true is that there's a lot of advantages um, in, in, in terms of, you know, understanding the world in different ways and in terms of being able to communicate with a more diverse group of people and stuff. So I think that all of those or, you know, peripheral aspects um, in terms of cognition um, far outweigh what we know about the advantages in terms of, of um, control over over cognition, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's so much contextual things, there's so much yeah, going on right. when you're raising exactly. a bilingual child and, you know, it, it's not, it, there's a lot to unpick, isn't there?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I mean it's an, it's an extraordinary thing to do, right, if you think about it, to learn two languages at once and be able to um, separate them appropriately um it's yeah quite an extraordinary task actually, but
1: yet we've heard you know that young children this this whether it's a myth or not we, we you know I think earlier Pedro said that this concept of plasticity in the early years w- was was not accurate that you can learn a language at any point in time is that correct, or is it why do young people or young children yeah. seem to be able to learn a language um more easily
0: yeah so um this is kind of about the idea of, um, of sensitive periods, right? Where So that's a, a period of brain development where um, you're able to learn something and that if you miss that window of opportunity, then you can't learn it again. And um, people do talk about language in that way sometimes, but really the only evidence is about learning sounds of language. So... If you want to have a flawless accent, then the earlier you learn the language, the better. But anything else is 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 pretty much a fair game, no matter what age you are. So you can learn new vocabulary at any at any point, as we do in our in our native language. Right.
1: So there are no um, excuses for anyone listening over the age of forty who wants to learn a new language.
0: Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, the way that it's yeah, the way that the brain. Um, processes new information does change with age so um for example you have to um actively pay more attention as you get a bit older but that doesn't mean that you can't do it or that your brain isn't plastic or isn't capable of that change it absolutely is um, there's only really specific very kind of low level things that you're better off doing When
1: you're young. Now we're running a little bit out of time, Victoria. Obviously, we could speak to you all day. We could do a whole day (laughs) on neuroscience and education. But I just wanted to say to you: know, are there anything? You know, how do you get the word out there about the work that you do to reach more teachers in schools? And if there are any schools listening, you know, is there a way of sort of, I don't know, creating a kind of a relationship between the work that you do and the work that they do? Or is there any way of getting parents more involved actively in the research that you do?
0: Um. Um, so, I mean, everybody's very welcome and encouraged to, um, to have a look at the Centre for Educational Neuroscience um, website. So we have a group of articles there called NeuroHIT or Neuromyth, which are exploring all of these different ideas that we've talked about today. Um, and, I mean, the, the, as I said, the Centre for Educational Neuroscience is always developing um, big new projects and, and looking for schools to be involved in those projects. So there are definitely opportunities to, to get involved. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Um, yeah.
1: Well, we shall be posting up every. I love the articles that you've done about the neuro myths, and I did post them on Twitter earlier today, and oh, I great. will post them up and on our Facebook page because thank you. it's there's just such a, great reading, isn't it?
0: Thank you. There's a there's a brand new one um, about the um, about brain stimulation. Which
1: is uh, very futuristic. (laughs) Wow, there's a lot to learn, certainly for everyone. So, listen, Dr. Victoria Nolan, thank you so much for joining us and uh, all the very best. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So there we are, we've had, oh my goodness, my brain, I don't know about yours, it's absolutely buzzing and I'm going to have to listen back to this as a podcast and try and understand and unpick everything. So we've been talking about neural myths in education, things about the brain, things about education and learning that just aren't true. And our next and final guest will be David Weston, who's the Chief Executive at the Teacher Development Trust. So he's the guy who helps shape the sort of the, the, the quality of the continuing professional development that our teachers have in the U.S uk and i thought he was a really good person to ask about about the fact that these myths are still being perpetuated in our schools and why that might still be the case so hopefully we'll have dave on the phone let's see if he's there hello dave hello well, thank you for joining us on the tail end of the parents' show. There's about four minutes before the show ends. So we're going it's to... It's been fascinating. <laughs> can you give us... A, my, my big question, Dave, is, you know, why is neuroscience not up there as a CPD priority? And surely staying on top of the science around memory and motivation and learning is absolutely key if you're a teacher.
3: So it is an interesting one. When you look at initial teacher education, um, over uh, th- there's been for quite a long time the sense that some courses in initial teacher education have been a little bit behind the times on educational um, sort of neuroscience cognitive science and um, some professional development for teachers on the job has been a bit behind the times um, and actually uh, as teachers you know we we kind of like to beat ourselves up about this and clearly it could be a lot better we could do a much better job of getting new ideas out there i'm quite excited by seeing the new chartered college of teaching their, um, their latest uh, couple of um, magazines have come out, and actually, their journals have been full of information about the latest cognitive science. That said, everyone always says, Wow, why can't we be as good as something like medicine? But actually, the interesting fact is, when a new practice comes out in medicine, say for nurses, for example, it often takes 10 to 15 years for that practice to go all the way through the profession and get adopted. So yes, it's quite hard to change people's views, it's quite hard to change people's minds when there are uh, things that are a bit out of date, but we shouldn't beat ourselves up enormously. Um, We should just focus on, okay, let's keep spreading great ideas, get involved with great organisations who are going to be research-based. Um, so there's more to do, but I just don't think we need to beat teachers up too much at this stage.
1: Okay. And equally, parents have a job too. you know, it's our job to sort of educate ourselves and about science. And, 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 and the big message is really teaching our children as well to be discerning about what they're reading and always asking for where the evidence is.
3: Well, absolutely. Um, so I've just been—I'm uh, oh, nearly finished writing a book called "Unleashing Great Teaching." Should be out next year. And one of the things we tell teachers to do is something parents can do as well, which is any time someone says, "Here's a piece of research," tap it into Google, but type in that phrase and then research. Type in that phrase and also systematic review which will tell you, has anyone really reviewed this area? Have they ever looked across the research and said, is there any evidence for it? It's worth being critical consumers. For parents as well, if someone's saying, great, here's a great left brain, right brain myth, which both, you know, Pedro and Victoria have demolished, look, left brain, right brain... Left-brain, right-brain criticism. Left-brain, right-brain reviews. Left-brain, right-brain systematic reviews. Have a look at that, and you'll rapidly find out there's a lot of criticism of these ideas. And actually, as long as we're cautious and we do look for the opposing views and we really do look for, you know, what's the great evidence, then actually I think we're in a much better place. The trouble is, if something feels really juicy and great and you want to believe it that's when you should be the maximum have the maximum caution
1: so david very very briefly i think you've got under 40 seconds tell us what the (laughs) tdt does and how you can help teachers listening
3: so uh, what we're trying to do is is help give teachers access to much better professional development so we'll go into schools and say how well are you doing your training for teachers and try and improve that we'll train school leaders head teachers and heads of department how they do that Lovely. So we we'd will, love people to
1: have a look <clears throat> at our website we will, we'll stick your, your website up on Facebook thank, you, thank so you so much for joining us this evening on the parent show on 92.6 FM join us next week all the very best thank you so much
0: Neve's solicitors are proud to sponsor the parent show the friendly team at Neve's includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life visit neve's Neve Solicitors, your complete legal solution.